Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 6, Episode 4, Weekend at Bobby's. Let's get this show on the road. So before we start today, I feel like it's super important to just kind of highlight how thankful we are for everybody who's been listening and who is listening, who has even listened in the past, you know, like, because we don't pay a lot of attention to the number of listeners or downloads, but like, we recently had a look and we just really felt the love. So like, thank you to everybody who has helped make the beginning of season six just so amazing for us. I feel like the interactions we get on social media and through Discord are so much more valuable and so much more important. But then once in a while, you do see the numbers and it's like, oh, (laughs) hi, everyone. It's like, oh, hello. Hi. (laughs) I think of the people like, you know, I I see their names pop up every day in Discord and Twitter and like TikTok. And I'm like, oh, I know these people. They're the people that like our show. And there's like, oh, there's other people whose names I don't know who are listening, clearly. I wanted to take a little moment to kind of like thank everybody whose name we don't necessarily know who are listening to us like on a weekly basis. Just because we don't see your name on Twitter or other social platforms, whether that be by choice or for whatever reason, that's fine. And we thank you for listening. So Drew, what did you think of this episode? This episode was bloody brilliant. So again, this was a live watch with some of those uh, listeners I mentioned earlier from our Discord. I knew going in, it was going to be like a different episode. I, I, I kind of have this like I've learned now whenever there's an episode, everyone's really hyped to watch with me. It's either going to break my heart or be super funny. I'm really happy to say this was a super funny one while having a lot of emotional beats. I mean, we broke your heart with Swan Song already a couple months ago. So we figured like, let's give him a little pick me up, you know? <laughs> I was worried. I was like, I, I need a good one. I think I think the one before Swan Song 2 was also heartbreaking, if I'm not mistaken. So to start season six off, which, and again, I, I voice my opinion season six up to this point being not bad, but just not drawing me in. This just was like a perfect piece of like, here's the old supernatural, you know, and love in a completely new flavor. Stupendous. Should I count you down for the recap? I think you should. Three, two, one, go. We get an entire episode dedicated to Bobby. Sam and Dean are very much secondary characters. We get a little bit of what Bobby's been doing trying to get his soul back from Crowley, uh, which is ultimately successful, even though it involves some cool trickery. We learn some cool new tricks about burning the bones of a demon back when they were still human before they went through hell, which is a cool bit of new lore, which is going to be interesting, I hope. Uh, We also get a lot more Jody, which is super exciting. We also get Rufus with some interesting new backstory to him, which is crazy. But ultimately, we get a really good Bobby-centric bottle episode that really kind of goes to teach us more about Bobby and what he does and who he is. And is just ultimately a really fun episode with a lot of lessons time. There you go. They had a target and they bloody hit it. It's one of my favorite episodes. I just love the overlay of like the gambler with like Bobby having trouble like balls, (laughs) you know? That whole montage of him just balls over and over again. And then the ultimate tying it together at the end with Crowley saying bollocks. I thought it was like a a very, very sweet little like moment. Like it almost makes me want to like what would Crowley's episode be like? Because I feel like it would be very similar to Bobby's in that sense. 
I think there's more parallels there than we know about. So first things first, we get to see Jody, Rufus, and Crowley in this episode. And that's like in addition to Sam, Dean, and Bobby. And there's even a mention of Garth. During the live show, everyone was very excited for Garth. And I'm just sitting here going, who or what is a Garth? You may eventually find out. But I think that this is probably like the most recurring characters that we've ever seen in an episode. The only other like combo I could kind of see being like recurring would be Ash, Joe and um, Ellen. Ellen. Thank you. I knew it was missing one of them. Even when they were in episodes, they were almost once in a while. They got a little extra screen time, but they were very secondary. Here we get like three very like prominent roles, which is I think this episode makes very special. Yes, I agree. Crowley still has Bobby's soul and he basically has no intention of giving it back. I think I made this prediction a while ago, too, when it came to Crowley that, like, he wouldn't necessarily be, like, malicious about it, but he would kind of see the benefit of keeping it as long as he could. And clearly it was to kind of keep himself safe here was the idea. So a little more shady than I expected, but I'm not surprised by him. Again, like we also just learned in a previous episode that souls hold power of some sort. Right. And so, like, there may be an incentive for Crowley to want to hang on to Bobby's soul. We get a new lore drop. We find out that you can kill demons by burning their human bones, kind of like a ghost. Which is, you know what, really interesting because I feel like it's building off of information we've already had. Like, I'm almost upset that I didn't think about this sooner and, like, bring it up because, like, they make it very clear in, I want to say, season four, season five, that demons are just human souls that have gone to hell and been tortured so long that they've eventually gone completely corrupt and become demons that like, yes, they ultimately, as you said, started as humans, which means they have to have bones to burn, which again leads to the whole thing of like, if there's no bones to burn, how does that work? Is there an, Can it be the same thing where it's like a uh, an heirloom or a relic that holds it? I don't think that that's ever going to be explained, but like we just know in this episode that a demon's human bones is kind of like a liability for them, essentially. I think Bobby puts it really well is you're just um, or is, was it Bobby says it or is it one of our like listeners who said it? it was the line about like demons are just really like egotistical ghosts. I think that was in the chat. <laughs> Might have been in the chat. Whoever that was. Thank you. Because I think it's great that they're just like they're just like douchebag level ghosts with powers. We find out a lot about Crowley. Also, he is Scottish and his human name was Fergus McLeod. He had a son who was named Gavin and who died in a shipwreck, and they did not get along. And he sold his soul, and I quote, for an extra three inches below the waist. Like, you know what? There's something about having a comeback that quick. It's a very British or European thing, I think, in that style of humor. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love all of this. I love all this lore, learning more about Crowley bringing Gavin in as like this like piece of like connective tissue I thought was all really gold. Now, I just want to point out that in this episode, we're told that Gavin McLeod was the captain of a trading ship. And we just want to keep that in mind. I will make note of it, I guess. Again, this is one of those things where I never thought Gavin would come up again, but okay. <laughs> but, but now I'm telling you, keep him in mind. He was a captain of a trading ship. Got it. After some really tense moments, Crowley does finally agree to give Bobby his soul back and he picks up his bones so that he can put them somewhere safe, I assume. Again, this just opens up the more questions. Can any demon just go find their bones and put them somewhere safe now? I mean, up until now, they didn't know they had to really. It seems like it was they all sort of think it's a myth. I also just love there's a thing, too, in this moment where 
Crowley kind of drops his persona in this moment, which, again, we'll get to in story time. But like it, it just it makes it weird as it sounds to say this. It makes him so much more human and relatable. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I as you know, I am a Crowley defender. And so, like, I think that this is a great episode for Crowley. Like he, he does not come off great. But again, like <laughs> did nothing wrong. And and also, like, we're not going to talk about it much in this episode, but, like, Dean, like, still increasingly feels like there's something off with Sam, right? Uh, so that's still going on, even though, like, it's taking a bit of a backseat, at least, like, on this podcast. We're not going to talk about it that much. Yeah, but if we can at least bring it up here for a second, like, you know what? Like, bless them for keeping that connective tissue. I think it's so easy for a quote-unquote bottle episode to kind of ignore anything that's not relevant to the episode itself. So at least keeping that as a connective tissue and kind of running it through as part of like a semi Dean plot in this, I feel like is just kudos to them. Yeah. I think it was well worked in and it was like a good, like part of a plot point, you know, like I thought it was well done, but anyway, like just kind of mentioning that that's still going on. Cause we have a lot more to talk about in story time. Today, our theme is home, which comes from the German word Heim with the same meaning. And I thought that I would read some definitions of home so that we could try to like maybe think about that word in a different way. Uh, So first we have the place where one lives permanently, especially as a member of a family or a household, which is probably, I think, like the first thing that we think about when we think about home. And then within that definition, we also have, you know, the family unit or social unit occupying a home, right? So referring to the people, as well as a house or an apartment considered as a commercial property. So like from these two like sub-definitions, I guess, like we sort of find that like home can refer to like the actual building where we live, but also the environment within the dwelling, I guess, right? So like the people who live in the building. And finally, and I think this is my favorite one because it's intriguing, A place where something flourishes is most typically found or from which it originates. Ooh. And I think that this is the one that has like the most interpretive potential. So I'd love for us to kind of think about this definition of home, like as we go through this episode. While we can very easily see Bobby's place as a home, I think it's very clear that the home connection here is more to Bobby than the place itself. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. It has like that capacity for growth, flourishing, uh, you know, from which it originates. So like something to do with identity there. Like, I don't know. I think it's so cool. Like there's just so much there to kind of like pick apart. And Bobby is the main character in this episode. Yeah, truly, he is the focus this week, and it's easy to see how much Bobby acts like a home to those around him. Like, yes, there's the, like I said, there's the physical home part. There's his bank of fake identity phones, uh, his leadership role, and kind of as a source of knowledge, uh, which we see expanded upon here, that he isn't just like a resource. He's actually going out and even breaking into libraries to get his information. His place is kind of become the home away from home for hunters, it seems. We, We see... Rufus come to him so quickly. We even see Jody while she is not a hunter. She still kind of treats it with respect because it's someone in her town, someone she's connected to in a way. But I think really what it comes down to is Bobby himself creates an aura of home around him. You know, even when he's out meeting up with Sam and Dean, 
just being in the hotel room with Bobby feels like home because they're with a familiar face, a familiar presence. Yeah, I mean, I think that like this episode does a really good job at like establishing or reestablishing more likely like how much Bobby and Bobby's house have like become a home for so many things, right? Like for Sam and Dean, but also for like other larger hunting operations. Um, we see Bobby answering calls, pretending to be the FBI. We see him trying to test and figure out like some lore about the bones of demons. Uh, we see him like helping out Rufus when he needs it. And like all the while, like having to pretend to be a civilian and a good neighbor, right? Uh, so on the most like foundational level, like even surface level, like depending on how you want to look at this, like Bobby and Bobby's house, like represent home. I think in every definition, every sense of the definition that we talked about. The surface level is that Bobby's place is very much a home base for people. It's somewhere that a hunter can go that they know where they're going to feel safe. That is very much the surface. The reality is it's Bobby that makes his place feel like home. You know, if Bobby's not there and you're just going there as a safe haven, I can almost imagine Sam and Dean spending time there without him, which I think they may have done in the past, like very briefly. 100%. 100%. And anyways, throughout all this, Bobby is in his role as kind of this home base character is filling a role that we often see as a trope in any kind of like hero's journey adjacent story. The mentor figure, think um, my, my list of examples I had off my head were Luna from Sailor Moon, Splinter from Ninja Turtles, Zoran <laughs> from Power Rangers. Uh, the list goes on. But his existence can often be seen as secondary and only acting as a source of information or knowledge or kind of like a MacGuffin character. Basically there to move the story along when they kind of hit a natural dead point. We really see today what makes Bobby different is we see what he has to go through to do his job, that he isn't just sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. He is trying to eat some cobbler and getting interrupted over and over again. Honestly, I find this really interesting what you're saying, because like this episode puts a lot of work into putting Bobby in the spotlight, like as the main character for at least a good part of the episode. Right. And I think that like what you're sort of pointing us to here is that in spite of that, his main role in the series is is to be like this homely figure to represent like both the physical space of home and the emotions and relationships within it. I wish more shows did this where they took a character that we almost take for granted and give them more. Like, I feel like up until now, yes, we've gotten bits of Bobby's backstory. We've gotten episodes where he's been like paramount to what's going on. I mean, I think like, you know, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, for an example, he's very prominent in but he also just feels like a piece on a chessboard to get to an, a result this is really a chance for us to see that like there is more to him the next time i'm looking forward to the next time we have a regular air quotes episode where bobby is significantly featured as a secondary character and having to remember this is what he goes through on the day-to-day what we're not seeing while Sam and Dean are bickering in baby and chasing some sort of specter. I would sort of argue that they could have done that also with Ellen, but instead they chose to blow her up. Again, like I said, I'd like to see other characters get this treatment. I've even seen, I cannot recall what show did it, but I recall watching a show where like a character was killed off. And then the next episode was basically a like backstory episode for that character. 
So they went from being like, oh, it sucks that we lost this character to being like, oh, shit, we lost a character, not just a like bit player. I don't know how it would have been handled with Ellen or Joe, but like having the next episode immediately be like an Ellen and Joe episode leading up to them going to this town and meeting the brothers kind of thing on their own version of like the hunt up to this point and like helping to flesh them out as more than just like, again, pawns in the brothers story. We do get Jody in this episode as well. We do get Jody back. Oh, I honestly, I know we've only had her for two episodes, but I love her. She is just such a great character. And again, we just hear a bit more in action here. And I, I, I touched on it earlier, but there's like a, there was a relationship with her and Bobby, which I think comes down to her position as like a leader figure in this small town. That just like, even though Bobby has a reputation, They don't get along, per se. She still has enough wherewithal to respect his boundaries, that he's clearly doing something outside of what she understands fully. And rather than ask questions, get in his way or cause trouble, she actively goes the extra mile to even knock someone of like a higher power, this FBI agent who comes along with her and basically like sends him off because she's like, I know you need your space to figure things out. I mean, honestly, so first of all, the good news is that we're going to get Jody. Uh, again, in future seasons. Still not enough to my taste, but, you know, we're going to get a little bit more of her. So if that makes you happy, then I'm very happy to hear that. And I think that what's really cool about Jodi is that, like, okay, so, like, Jodi has a home, and it's Sioux Falls. Um, You know, in spite of the tragedy that happened to her, like, where she lost both her husband and her son. And in that respect, I think that, like, home must feel quite different uh, to her. If we assume that, like, obviously these two really, really important people were a part of what made this town a home for her. But I also think that there's something to be said about how she acts as a home for Bobby, too. Because, like, Bobby spends most of the episode being a home for others. And then Jody is able to, to offer, like, a huge deal of support to him when she is able to extradite Rufus back to him. I mean, I didn't even see that until now. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. But, yeah, like, I, I was so focused on her role in the town and kind of how she is her town's version of Bobby. I I, like there's this air of her being what keeps this town running, what keeps it safe, what keeps it kind of running smoothly. And I kind of saw that parallel right away in the way that she talks to Bobby about like how she has to keep order that despite then, as you said, getting Rufus out under questionable means, (laughs) you make it sound like it was official. I don't think it was very official. I mean, to some degree it had to have been official. Like, you know what I mean? Like she had to call in favors and whatnot. The same way we see people show up at Bobby's place to see Bobby because they need that sense of home and safety. We see that in the way Bobby and Jody interact with each other is he sees her as the kind of the the runner of this town, the Bobby of this town. And being in a town that she has some presence over makes him feel safe to operate the way he does within this town. She didn't have to, to, or if you don't think it was official, she didn't have to bring him Rufus. You know what I mean? Like she helps him with the the FBI agent and that's like one thing. But I think bringing Rufus to Bobby is like, is a lot more than just keeping the town safe. I also kind of wonder how much Jody now sees Bobby as a safe place, as a, as a sense of home, given her more recent interaction with the supernatural on a level that she can't really deny anymore. Like, I'm really curious to know if this episode had happened before Deadman would don't wear plaid 
would she have gone to those lengths to get Rufus for Bobby? I don't I don't think so. So I think it's kind of a reciprocal, like they both kind of understand how like one is the like I almost want to say like customer facing law versus the behind the scenes version of law of like keeping the town safe. One deals with the criminals we can talk about and show on the news. One deals with the um, criminals of the more uh, werewolf and vampire variety. And just like as a parenthesis here, like Jody is a cop. And so that's for me deeply problematic. And so like when we're talking about like the law and keeping order and whatnot, like I, it, it feels deeply like I anyway, I have a lot of issues surrounding that. And so like I think we're talking in story, but like we know that that is not necessarily how policing is done. Right. I want to bottle up some Rufus. I'm just saying like it would be so much fun. I think we get like. We get so much Rufus in this episode in such a short period of time that it just like it's like I feel like it's impelled with water balloons. You just don't have time to recover from one before the next one hits you. You're just like, wait, Rufus is Jewish. Wait, Rufus does this. Wait, he's a whiskey guy. And like these little like knowledge bombs of Rufus. I want his own episode. We've known that Rufus is a whiskey guy since the very first episode he appeared. Right. So this this reaffirms it. But I like that he's not just a guy who like drinks whiskey because that's what old people drink. He's a guy who appreciates it and has like a knowledge for it. Uh, to my to my whiskey drink drinkers out there, I respect you. I don't get it. Seeing someone other than the brothers coming to Bobby in that same way that they tend to really helps to flesh out the relationship Bobby shares with other hunters in that kind of the guy in the chair vibe yeah like we really get to see how central and pivotal he is like for so many hunters out there like and i'm talking about sam dean but also rufus and garth and i I assume there has to be others it's not just those four and i think that's really the point of like the way this montage was kind of put together with him but it's also it's seeing how quickly if a bit unhinged rufus will also turn around to help bobby i feel like it's almost a little contrast to the way that Bobby is required to kind of give a speech to Sam and Dean to like get like get them to understand what he's doing for them. Whereas he says, hey, Rufus, I need your help. And Rufus is like, oh, yeah, I'm already on my way there. I knew you were going to call me. Let's get this figured out. Like, dude, dude knows his stuff and he's ready to help a buddy. Like, I feel like the relationship we were shown of them originally where they really don't like each other was like exaggerated and as much as they might not see each other as often as they want to I feel like when they were young hunters they had like the best time I think in a way the fact that like Rufus comes to Bobby with like this big urgent problem is like super similar to the way that I would call Rochelle when I have like a big and urgent problem you know like granted I've never had to get rid of a body before but like you know sometimes like you just need to come home to your besties so that they can help you I think that this is 100% reciprocal because like when Rufus sees that Bobby needs help with getting leverage over Crowley to get his soul back, Rufus just like immediately goes out to help, like you said. And I I really love the scene where they're like on the phone and Rufus has the ring and like he's chased by the cops. And so Bobby tells him, don't swallow it. And Rufus is like, okay, I'll swallow it. <laughs> like 
if that's not the best example of like a family member or a close friend trying to help but messing things up royally, then like I don't know what is. And to me, like that is the definition of home. Like you tried so hard to help me and yet you managed to fuck it up. <laughs> like Oh, <laughs> uh, so the only problem now is I'm trying to picture that scene with you and Rochelle. Which one of you is the one swallowing the ring? Which is the one sitting at home yelling, Don't swallow the ring? <laughs> you, you have to ask this question. <laughs> Actually, it could be both of us, frankly. <laughs> I, it really depends on the day. Some days it's Rochelle, some days it's you. What about the brothers, actually? I feel like we can sort of just put the two together this episode because they really work out of a package deal more than ever. Their minimal presence in the episode, we see how the grass on the other side may not always be as green as their request leaves Bobby a bit uh, sour and worse for wear. But really, it all culminates in the speech Bobby delivers to them. I think that's the most important part here. And he just points out just how much he does for them. And while he's not very, like, transparent, we've seen what the toll of that role can take on a, the poor guy. And he doesn't, like, spell it out for them of, like, what he's gone through. But just that he puts up so much for them. And he needs them to step up and be there for him for once. And I think that's another problem when it comes to, you know, when you think about home, you think of the people that you keep around you people that you feel are your safe space you have to remember that they're people too and hopefully it doesn't take them calling you out on speakerphone to get you to realize that uh and like rufus they can grow and learn and still make mistakes but be on your side at least i mean i think that there's a lot to unpack here because i think that like yes what we see is specifically dean treating bobby like not so well or at least like maybe taking him a little bit for granted. Like, you know, he calls and he expects an answer immediately. Like, he also expects, like, his full attention, whether, like, he needs an off-the-cuff way to, like, kill a super rare monster or to talk about Sam and how weird he's been acting. But, like, I I think what I'm taking from that is that Dean really feels at home with Bobby. And that's not to excuse his behavior, obviously. And I think he does realize that, like, when Bobby gives him, like, a good dressing down, as the British would say, like, over the phone. (laughs) Dean would never have acted like that with John. But he does with Bobby. And I think that it speaks to, like, how comfortable he is with him, how much he trusts him, and how much he sees him as a parent. Because Dean has never had someone actually be, like, attentive and responsive to his needs. But Bobby is. So when he feels like his needs aren't met, he's like, hello, I'm here, which, like, sort of makes me think of the way that my nine-year-old will come to me on weekends at lunchtime and be like, why haven't you fed me yet? (laughs) I can hear him. It's not like I'm hungry and it's not like, can we have lunch? It's just like, why haven't you fed me yet? That's kind of what I'm seeing happening here. Like since Dean never got to experience that, like he never got to be a child who had a parent who was responsive to his needs. Like he's experiencing it for the first time now. And so he has no experience to tell him that he's being unreasonable. The counterpoint to your nine-year-old is they will grow up and hopefully through proper parenting and like social norms will learn how to better have that conversation with you and the people they feel safe around. Absolutely. Dean is just having that moment right now and is old enough to be told, no, you're an idiot. Sorry, you're an idiot. Uh, Idiot. And, And that's the thing, right? Like the second that he realizes that Bobby needs help, He's like, all right, I'm in. Like, he took a transatlantic flight for crying out loud. And we know how much he hates flying. Like, that is love and dedication. So the boys are also showing Bobby that, like, they're his home, too. 
this entire thing, I think we saw it with Jody as well. We see it with Rufus is it's it's a two way thing to trust somebody that way to see them as your safe place to be that home feeling when you're around them. It benefits them as well to have you in their life, which is the goal and kind of make it a reciprocal relationship. And I, I, I'm i not saying that Bobby has that with every single hunter he knows, but the ones he's let in to be more than just the guy in the chair his Rufus, his Sam and Dean, his even his Jody at this point, they can understand and be there for him. There's also like a small little hidden thing here I need to bring up. And it's how both Sam and Dean call Bobby to talk about the other one. He, Bobby makes that very clear on the phone. And while, you know, the, the big reaction is like Sam being like, oh, you're calling Bobby to talk about me behind my back. Bobby calls them both out for doing it, which means Sam's been calling Bobby in the same way behind Dean's back, whether it be in that year up until now or even now while they're together. I know we aren't going to get into it much, but just again, that reiterating Sam's got a secret going on, but also that Sam's been having secret chats with Bobby about Dean, which leads me to be like, oh, what else is going on here? Well, I have some thoughts about that for critical time, if you don't mind, like holding that thought. I'm holding it. One character that we haven't talked about is Crowley. Oh, True. And I think it's interesting because he represents like the flip side of home in this episode, which is like what happens when home is not a good place or when it has like the potential to be really painful. And I think that this is visible like in the fact that his home country and his hometown hold his bones, which potentially can lead to his death even as a demon if like somebody like Bobby or the Winchesters managed to get a hold of them. Like we also see the lack of love that he has for his son, which is like such a contrast to Bobby and his love for the brothers. It's one thing to not get along with a, a parental figure. Like, I'll be honest. If Sam or Dean's ghost was brought back and given the opportunity to, like, divulge the location of John's bones to some demon who wanted him out, they would probably not do it. As much as they don't love their father, they would at least have enough, like, oh, he's my dad, I can't do that to him. But, like, clearly... Crowley and his son do not have that relationship. Uh, Gavin is all too willing to just spill the beans about where his bones are. And I think it just, it, and again, we're also kind of seeing it and it's very like tetriary all this even that Crowley is trying to make hell more of a home and taking it over and make things work the way they should work and be a little more proper. And almost like he's trying to become the Bobby for hell for other demons, but other demons are, well, they're just hell to deal with. You said also that he, like, drops his mask at some point, like... I, I mean, Crowley is such an amazingly fun character. Like, I made the joke before, the joke he makes before about, like, you know, wishing for three more inches so we can hit, a you know, a nice double-digit number. Like, he's always got a retort. He's snappy. He always has to have the last line. He's, he's a showman. He really is a, like, show-off almost. So to have him going to collect his bones and just not having... Anything witty to say to Sam and Dean when they make jokes about burning them anyways, he's just like, I don't care. Fuck off. It almost sounds like he picks up the Scottish accent more in that moment, too. That's something that I think somebody pointed out actually during the live watch where they said that like his accent drastically changes from like the moment that we first meet him and like into later episodes, which I had never noticed before, but it's absolutely true. It's almost like he tries to put on like a more proper sounding like UK accent than kind of the more classic, like that grittier Scottish one that we kind of see him adopt at the very end. 
I think I only notice it because I'm so used to hearing David Tennant in Doctor character and non-Doctor character, and they're such drastic accents. But it felt like that a bit. Like, go listen to David Tennant play the Doctor, and then go listen to David Tennant in an interview. That's what Crowley did. He went from, like, Doctor British to David Tennant Scottish. That's funny. (laughs) All right, well, we have a lot more stuff to talk about in Critical Time. So this episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin, directed by none other than Jensen Ackles, and originally aired on October 15th, 2010. In case he ever hears us, Jensen, for a directorial debut within this show, 10 out of 10, gold star, A+. Also, Dabb and Laughlin, I feel like we've given them, or I have, I won't speak for you, have given them some shit in regards to how some of their episodes they write come together. You know what? This one was really good. I really like them as a writing team. I think that they they definitely have some some moments of, again, like where they bring up things that are deeply prob- problematic to me. But I do think that the writing of the episodes is actually like really clever and interesting and always very entertaining. Every episode up until now, we've had something where like they tried to bring something up and just didn't do it in a tasteful way. And like... I don't know. This one just as a whole package was a very good episode. Well, this one like didn't contain like an open hate crime, right? So like, I feel like right away it it sort of helps. What's in the Hunter's Journal this week? Watching the action is exciting. Seeing them decapitate something ferocious or trick a yokai into some kind of self-destructive loop. All the while knowing I helped make those happen. I may not get to be of assistance in the moments, but... I'm proud of them, and myself nonetheless. What I do fear most is one day running out of use. We all have limits, and someday I won't be enough for them. I have so much knowledge to share, but every dog has his day or so I've heard. I fear mine is soon. As I find some places new and strange to me, this is... Well, this is it, I guess. Yeah, it's been a while since I've parted ways... Since a younger me with spunk and vigor faded to old and dusty. You know, I stretch, feeling my spine crack a bit more than I would like it. As I look upon a new face, one I do not know yet somehow looks very familiar. They look me up and down, their face riddled with questions. Too many to begin asking, but they... Oh, they're there behind that funny face they make when they try to figure me out. They settle on a page written upon me many years ago finding what it is they needed to know in the scribbled mess that was my last partner's excuse for penmanship. I expect to return to the wooden trunk I've called home these past few years, but instead I hear the thud of the lid close as I get tucked neatly beneath an arm of a stranger and I suspect a new friend. Ooh, oh my. Ah, the journal's a character now. The journal is a character. I sort of, I I love how meta this is because like my thoughts are about to get real meta too. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, yay. Let's go meta. Well, so, because I'd like to talk about perspective, particularly how it's seen in this episode. Because, like, we've been talking about this. Like, this episode is mostly seen from Bobby's perspective, which is, like, a huge departure from, like, 99.99% of, the ep- of like, the other episodes that we've seen so far, right? I think the only other episode that significantly changed that perspective was in Season 3, Episode 13, Ghost Facers. So if we remember, uh, one of the things that we talked about in that episode was like the, was specifically the change in perspective. Like Sam and Dean look kind of mean and kind of scary. They don't treat people they're trying to save really well. They swear 
And the fandom like coined a term for this and it's called the ghost facers effect. So in this episode, like I was kind of thinking about the ghost facers effect and like how it manifests on the screen. And I sort of think that like we see it most and like how the brothers are acting with Bobby, like we talked about earlier, like because when we're in a regular episode, what we see is like them calling and being like, hey, Bobby, we need help. And it's never like we never really think about the other side. But like once we are on the other side, we're like, holy crap, this is actually awful the way that they're treating them. And yet like it's nothing that's really like different from what we're usually seeing it. But anyway, the fact that we're seeing it differently, like offers a whole new set of information. And so it gets me thinking about like whose perspective we're really seeing in these regular episodes, like especially considering the fact that we know that Chuck was writing books about the brothers. So like who is the narrator of Supernatural and why do they present the brothers the way that they do? I know we brought this up kind of like more in a comedic way of how like, you know, both the ghost facers episode and this episode show the brothers being a little less adept at hunting. Uh, and like, maybe it's their, it's, it's their perspective that makes them look so much better than they are. But also I feel like the way Chuck writes them in the books probably does the exact same thing because they're so like fantastical in those books and raunchier. That is where my question is, right? Like, what do these books have to do? We never really find out if like Chuck is actually writing what is going to happen or if he's just getting visions of the future, right? Like that's not quite clear with the way that he disappears in at the end of season five. And so I think that that sort of like tickles that question in my brain in a funny way. You know what? I, it just means I'll be more excited for the potential for other non-brother focused episodes to further test the hypothesis of are they competent hunters when they're not the main characters? I don't know how many more episodes like that we could possibly get, but I'm hoping there's more. With 14 more seasons, I expect there'll be one of oh, 14 more seasons. With 11 more seasons, God, 14 more seasons, I would die. 11's already enough. <laughs> this week, we have a message from Kaylee. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use a recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, what do you think Bobby does to kick back and relax on a quiet night for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hi, Marie. Hi, Drew. My name's Kaylee, and I wanted to call in and talk about in true supernatural fan form, two really short lines from season four, episode 18, The Monster at the End of This Book. I don't remember you talking about the, these in the episode, so I wanted to call in and talk about it because I find it super interesting. There, in the scene where the bros first meet Chuck, we have this really short interaction. Chuck, it's very Vonnegut. Dean, Slaughterhouse-Five Vonnegut or Cat's Cradle Vonnegut? This is not our only reference to Chris Vonnegut in the show. We get a few more mentions of him throughout the show, if I'm not mistaken, almost exclusively by Dean or Chuck. I don't know how familiar y'all are with Vonnegut. He was a favorite of a lot of high school American literature teachers. And his books deal with, drumroll please, free will, supernatural buzzword. Both of the books mentioned in the scene 
uh, deal with these themes intensely. I'll be talking more about Slaughterhouse-Five because it's the one I had to read. In Slaughterhouse, we meet the aliens of the planet Tralfamador, who exist in all timelines and at all points of existence simultaneously, having near-omniscient knowledge of the entire universe, including their own eventual downfall and destruction. It is no surprise, then, the typical Tralfamadorian response to death is, and so it goes. Vonnegut is a really interesting choice of author to associate Dean with. His works not only deal with free will, but the aftermath of trauma, as shown in Slaughterhouse-Five, the end of the world as we know it in Ket's Cradle, and the loss of innocence through violence in my fur personal favorite Vonnegut Did I Dick, which is not mentioned in the show, but it is still particularly relevant to this conversation, I think. I don't really know what to make of this connection, but I think it would be really interesting to hear y'all talk about it. See you later! <laughs> okay, Kaylee, I just want to say that, like, from now on, I don't think that people are going to believe me when I say that I don't listen to the voicemails <laughs> before I, like, assign them, because you're hitting on, like, an, what I think is, like, an important, like, quote-unquote, hidden theme of this episode written by Andrew Dabb, who, as we know, is the showrunner of the last few seasons of Supernatural. <laughs> I, I don't quite know what to say about that. <laughs> Jude, do you want to start uh, answering? First of all, thank you for the voicemail. Uh, I love these kind of... I think we've had a few of these before. We kind of pick on like weird little like bits of Dean's knowledge that seem kind of weirdly out of character, albeit... I feel like Vonnegut's writing tends to attract a younger male audience that kind of like has that like machoism to it while being able to deliver a proper message. I myself was never fortunate enough to read any of Vonnegut's books throughout school. I was given a lot more boring stuff and always kind of wished I was reading Vonnegut. I think it's much more prevalent in the American curriculum than in I think so, I think so too, but ironically, I did take a like American literature class in college and we talked about Vonnegut a lot without reading any of his works. But we discussed kind of the themes of the books and like why he's so popular, which I thought was a really weird meta way to do that. All this to say, I think it's a weirdly apt thing for Dean to have been reading at a point where he was trying to. I can almost get like a bonding with John thing of like, this is the kind of book that dad would read. So I'll read it because it's about men being manly and then like secretly learning all these like other lessons from them that are not as evident unless you're looking for the research. So I'll be intrigued to see what other references they make. And maybe I need to set up a book club to read some Vonnegut books one of these days or pick up an audiobook book Max Flight. But thank you for bringing this to our attention. I, I love this realization. Yeah, Kelly, thank you so much. I mean, it's true. We didn't talk about it um, in the episode. And I, I'm also not familiar with Vonnegut, unfortunately. But if I'm trying to think about like his books being about free will and Dean, like most likely probably having been introduced to them in high school, it kind of makes me wonder about like what he was thinking in high school, because what we saw of him kind of sounded like he was very, at least outwardly, really, quote unquote, like loving the life that he had. Right. I'm thinking back to the episode where he's like, you know, I'm a hero, you know, and 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 that kind of stuff. And even in Bugs, like where he's like, no, I would never have wanted like a, a white picket fence. And it sort of brings me back to this idea that we can't always trust Dean when he narrates his own life. Clearly, if Vonnegut is 
talking about free will, and he enjoyed Vonnegut so much that he read many of his books, then I would assume that this is something that was on his mind when he was in his teen and early, maybe early 20s. So I think that Dean's internal, like his internal world and his internal life is very different from what he's projecting out there. Not projecting in the sense that like, applying onto others, but more like what he's showing to other people. Yeah, I think that's what it makes me think about, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's the it's the mask he wears of we've always kind of gone back to of his like very hetero self. And like, you know, those moments that kind of leak through, you know, the same way that like Bonnegan's books, I know were very popular because they seem like Slaughterhouse-Five sounds like a badass book. And it's only once you've read it, do you realize that there's a lesson to be learned and there's something to glean from it more than just it's a cool sounding book, which is, I think, Dean to a T in some sense. In so many levels. And I think that that's really kind of like who Dean is, right? Like he's showing a certain things, but he's feeling very differently. And sometimes he might not even be aware that he's feeling these things because he's worked so hard on showing us certain things. Like we've talked about that in his sexual identity, for example. So like, it wouldn't surprise me that this is something else that's going on for him. Drew, what are you reflecting on after this episode? A reminder to myself to be thankful for those around me. I have people who I reach out to on a regular basis when I need a pick me up. I need to cheer myself up when I need to kind of talk through things. And while I don't think I've necessarily been like bad about, you know, like being reciprocal, just, you know, that reminder sometimes of just like thanking them for being there for me and not taking it for granted. And I, I hope if anyone in that bubble is listening to this, they know how much I appreciate them. And I'm going to make sure that people who likely aren't listening to this are reminded of that when I can, because at the same time, I've also been on the other end of that where someone has just like, blurted out a thank you to me for being who I am and it's like it takes you off guard and also just feels really good like it's the ultimate warm fuzzy hug even if they can't be there in person to those who take care of me even when I need it thank you and some of you might be on this call right now and speaking of which your calls to action and reflections this week I mean I feel like this episode makes me feel called to think about reciprocity too like in a, in a bit of a different way but like also reciprocity because like I feel like we're often thinking about like what other people mean to us, but I'm not sure how much time we spend, or at least I know that I spend little to no time thinking about what I mean to other people. And so I think just thinking about that a little bit maybe helps in terms of like establishing good reciprocity with others. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, Katira L. and Jeremiah Thomas. This week, we'd like to thank Kaylee for their message. You can find the links to all our social media and our merch store at carryingwayward.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to us. If you like Carrying Wayward and you'd like to support us in our project to go through all 15 seasons of Supernatural, you can support us through Coffee or Patreon, and you can find those links at carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Well, I would like to know, what do we think Bobby does to kick back and relax on a quiet night? 
And I feel like Bobby's also the kind of person who probably doesn't get shit face. He probably goes from like, like awake to a little bit funny to like very tired very quickly, kind of that old man drinking kind of thing. <laughs> and just like, I mean, we do know from like Jody in that episode, right? Dead men don't wear plaid. That like he's like he has a couple of drunken disorderlies. 